Good morning, New Hope family. So glad that you're here. You are in good voice this morning. That was really awesome worship. Love that. A couple of announcements for you before we jump in. We're going to get into Genesis 44 and 45, and Joseph actually reveals himself this morning. That's so much fun. Yeah. Um, I know a lot of you have been waiting for this. <laughs> two, two details for you to know before we get into this, and I'm going to pray with you. Um, out in the atrium this morning are some tables related to small groups. If you're interested in being in a small group and you'd like to connect that way, maybe you're new to church and you want a, a way to get to meet people, that's a great way to do it. So after the service in the atrium, there'll be some connections tables. Just look for individuals there. They'll be able to answer your questions about how you can get involved and what the scheduling like, looks like for that. Um, the second detail is this. New Hope is planning a trip to Israel. And that trip will take place this year in October, and I will be leading that trip. It is in the end of October to the very first part of November. So there's going to be an email sent out this afternoon, and you are welcome to participate in that trip if you would like. The email will be sent at 3 o'clock this afternoon, church-wide, to anybody that we have their email for, and you'll be able to get all the details of the schedule, the pricing, where we'll be at, um, the hotels, all that definition if you need it. Um, there are only 40 seats available on this first trip. We're going to do future trips, but this first one, there's 40 seats. So if you're interested, I really would encourage you. I think they're all going to fill today. So be sure to jump online and take a look at that uh, program if you would be interested in that. I'm going to ask you to take a minute and pray with me. We especially need God to lead us through this because this is a, just an intense passage that's coming up. Let's pray together. Father, every time we recognize that you are the one who is the teacher, and you are the guide, you are the one who gives life to your word, and it's through the work of the Holy Spirit. It's your word, you gave it to us so that we would know you better, and we would know who we are to you and who you are to us. I pray in that way, Father, that this passage that we're looking at in Genesis 44 and 45, that it would be caused by you to come alive in such a way that it actually affects our lives this week, perhaps for the rest of the year, perhaps for the rest of our life. Nothing is beyond you and your capacity to speak through your word, so we turn this over to you and we especially ask that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see and hearts that are really willing to listen. We pray for this in the majestic name of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. When Steven Spielberg asked John Williams to write the underscore for Schindler's List, he invited him into a screening room. Much of the film had been accomplished. There were excerpts that he pulled out, and John knew why he was being invited to come into the screening room for a hard screening to see the images on screen that would allow him to write a score. Somewhere midst way through the movie, John got up and walked out. Visibly losing control of his emotions, he had to leave. After a little while went by, he decided to come back into the room. He looked Steven Spielberg in the eye and said, Steven, you need someone else to write the music for this. To which Stephen replied, I know, John, but they're all dead. 
I think he was probably referring to Mozart, Rachmaninoff, Beethoven. He said, you need somebody better than me. You need, New Hope, somebody better than me to teach what we're about to look at. The magnitude of what comes off these pages is so powerful that I can't possibly accomplish it for you. In the case of Steven Spielberg and John Williams, the Schindler's List movie, if you haven't seen it before, is a very visceral depiction of the Holocaust of World War II. It, it is so graphic. If you haven't seen it yet, don't. It will scar you. It will leave you with emotional and mental scars. But here's what I would ask you to do. For just a moment, just indulge me. Listen to just a few seconds of what John Williams composed for Schindler's List. Close your eyes if you have to. Just drink in the sounds of this violin. that to underscore what individuals would visually be seeing on the screen so that they would be able to take the emotion in and not just be absent from what was going on on the screen but actually be present in the moment. In order to appreciate the depth of what humans are capable of doing to other humans the story which you have waded through so patiently with me over these last number of weeks, it, it, it sears into your memory the magnitude of the great struggle that we all face, every single one of us, when sin takes hold of humans. What it actually looks like for Joseph's brothers to be allowed to be in the place where they let sin take control of them and they gave into jealousy, and they gave into rage that would see their brother disappear from their sight. 
Capturing the deep emotion of the biblical narrative is something that we all struggle with. We freely admit that. As we're reading the stories of the Bible, sometimes they see absent of, they seem absent of life because it's so distant from the time that we live in and, and the cultural gap is so vast, not to mention the fact that they're very, very concise in what they record. So at times these narratives can come across as being empty of really true heartfelt struggles that are, we know they're there between the lines, gratefully. I would, I would love for you to say amen if you agree with this. We have the Holy Spirit who brings life to God's Word. So because the Holy Spirit causes the Word to come alive, we approach this story this morning saying, God, would you bring this in application to my life? Today in Genesis 44 and 45, it absolutely culminates in one of the greatest scenes of raw human emotion, and I promise you, if I could add greater depth to it by setting it to music, I would. I would absolutely do that for you. Joseph has already brilliantly created tension in the two moments in which his brothers have come before him during these two visits, and now you will see him deliver his master stroke by setting up a two-part final exam for them. Go with me to Genesis chapter 44 and verse one. It's late in the afternoon after the banquet is done and this is where we pick it up. Then he commanded his house steward saying, fill the men's sacks with food as much as they can carry and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest and his money for the grain. And he did as Joseph had told him. Now, the, the banquet's done. The brothers have gone off to wherever they're going to lodge for the night. But Joseph remains behind, and he gives very specific instructions to the staff of his house, especially to the chief steward. And this is information that the brothers are completely unaware of. And he says, I want you to do three things. First of all, fill their sacks and fill it completely with grain. This will be much more than they even bargained for. But also, I want you to put in their mouth of their sacks, bury it down in there, put the, put the money in there that they brought with them, and then take my silver cup, this very special silver cup, and put it in Benjamin's sack along with his money. Now, this special object that they're referring to here, this silver cup is later going to be passed off in the story as a divining cup in order to make the crime scene even more intense. Apparently, the brothers stay very nearby, perhaps within the mansion itself, because they're sent off early the next morning at first light, so maybe they're in the guest rooms of the mansion. But what we do know is Joseph heads to bed with a plan, and his plan is he's going to test his brothers. He needs to know for sure whether or not there's been real life change that's taken place. And the test is very basic. When the cup is uncovered in Benjamin's sack, Will the brothers abandon Benjamin as they did Joseph in the past? Now, I'm envisioning that they're waking up super optimistic the next, next morning. They've had a very good reason to be optimistic because of what's unfolded there. I think they're probably congratulating themselves as they leave Egypt. They've got Benjamin with them. They've got Simeon with them. They've got more food than they ever bargained for. And they've had a fantastic banquet the day before with the most powerful ruler in all of Egypt. Things are really great, but their world is about to collapse, and they have no idea of all people. Benjamin, the very one whom they're supposed to be protecting, that one is going to be arrested for stealing the silver cup. 
It's the collapse of a world that's previously been built on hatred, manipulation, lies, treachery, and deceit. And Joseph needs to know a couple things. He needs to know if this is who they still are. And he needs to know how they're going to treat Benjamin in the midst of this crisis. But there's also this issue of the sin, this very dark secret that's been hidden for 22 years. It's got to be surfaced. Verse 3, as soon as it was light, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had just gone out of the city and were not far off when Joseph said to his house steward, up, follow the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks and which he indeed uses for divination? You have done wrong in doing this. Now, it's the wee hours of the morning. And they hear the thunder of horse hoofs coming after them, trying to catch up with them. And looking back, they see the guard of Pharaoh himself coming and overtaking them. And the brothers are clearly shocked based on what's recorded here in the narrative on multiple levels. On one level, they're stunned that they're even being chased. They had just had dinner in this guy's house, a banquet. And now they're being accused But the biggest shock for them is they're being told that a thief has stolen the master's very special silver cup. And so verse 5 says, the one indeed which he uses for divination, according to Genesis 44. Now here's a detail. In the Hebrew language, there's a play on words. Divining, he divines. That's the way it actually reads in the Hebrew, but that doesn't work so good in the English world, and so they put the word divination there. But divining, he divines, actually plays into this word because this is the word that's actually used. You see in your notes this morning, nakash. Now think back with me to Genesis 3. If you were here during that study, you learned that when the serpent came into the garden and tempted Adam and Eve, the serpent is called the nakash. Divining he divines is playing on the world of the occult. And the occult is part of what the Egyptians played games with. They dabbled in divining things. And so Joseph is playing on this imagery. Egyptian magicians would take a special cup and they would put a piece of gold and a piece of silver in it and then water would be added to the cup and then they would drop drops of oil into it. And depending on how the light refracted, they would make predictions about the future. For the brothers, it was only the day before when they were at this banquet and they were wondering, how in the world could this Egyptian vizier know the birth order of our ages? Joseph is simply allowing their minds to wander here about what does this guy actually know? And so this silver cup, it just amplifies the mystique around this individual, verse 6. So he overtook them and spoke these words to them. They said to him, why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks we have brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then could we steal the silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants it is found, let him die, and we will also, we will be my Lord's slaves. See, they're so sure of their innocence, they're overcompensating for the thing that they're being accused of, and so they're announcing their own sentence if they're found guilty. Now, under Egyptian law, if you're the accused, Egyptian law permits you to choose your own sentence. If the accuser agrees to 
the sentence that you've proclaimed. Well, they're just taking advantage of the Egyptian law and they're saying, this is what you can do to us. But check this, slavery is exactly what these guys fear. It's the very last thing that they wanted and yet they're willing to risk it because they're that certain of their innocence. So they're making a really logical argument. We would never do this. We brought money back to you from the first time. We came to buy grain, we bought grain. Everything that we have is legally ours. If you find it otherwise, you can kill one of us and the rest of us will be your slaves. But knowing the intent of Joseph is actually to test these guys, the chief steward modifies their sentence. Next verse, verse 10. So he said, now let it also be according to your words. He with whom it is found shall be my slave and the rest of you shall be innocent. In other words, you'll be free to leave. Verse 11, then they hurried, each man lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack. He searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. Now, let's just pause here for a moment and give the chief steward his due. This guy has a flair for the dramatic, all right, because he's the one who actually hid the silver cup. So he knows whose bag it's in, and he knows that he put it into Benjamin's bag. So he's working his way from the oldest to the youngest. This is totally prolonging the process. He knows exactly which bag it's in, and so this is kind of like, let's just see how much your heart can take, guys. I'm going to push it to the limit. And the very first bag is Reuben's bag. So they untie it. And he reaches his hand down and brings it out. What's this? A bag of cash. And he goes bag after bag after bag right on down the line. And every single bag has cash in it. What now? Finally, he lays his hand on Benjamin's bag last. Now to say these guys are stunned would be a massive understatement. They know they haven't stolen this. They hadn't stolen money on the first trip. And now it's there again. This is a nightmare that's never going to end. And yet, as the enormity of the implications of this situation begin to dawn on them, they quickly move into the realm of being seriously distraught. Verse 12. He searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Pause there. What would be your reaction? What? I know that we haven't taken that silver cup. How, how in the world is it in Benjamin's bag? And this sudden threat to Benjamin's life is like a spear through their heart. So naturally, they have this reaction in verse 13. Then they tore their clothes, and verse 13 completely stands on its own. You know, even if you're not from the Middle East, you know the culture, the, the rending of the garments, the shredding of the clothing when death is upon someone. You see it with King David when he heard that Saul had died. You saw it with Jacob when he heard that Joseph had been torn to pieces. He rent his clothing and mourned for many days. So we find these guys who had a common goal in getting grain for their family, getting Simeon out of prison. Now they've got a common pain and each one of them is in genuine distress just as if someone had died. So verse 13, part B. And when each man loaded his donkey, they returned to the city. I broke that out separately so that you would pay attention to this. 
You notice that all the brothers tear their clothes and all the brothers return to the city. Which is remarkable because the steward of the house had just said to them, the one who's guilty, I'm going to make him a slave. They didn't have to go with him. They could have stayed behind and left and left Benjamin alone. So all the conditions are present for another betrayal. And if they're acting in self-preservation, they can simply renounce Benjamin, a thief. They can bail on him and they can leave for Egypt immediately. But something very different occurs. And in the next passage, we find them ushered into the presence of the prime minister of Egypt, Joseph himself, verse 14. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell to the ground before him. Joseph said to them, what is this deed you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed practice divination? That's the very occasion he had foreseen 22 years earlier when he was 17 years old. This is the third time that we've seen it, except something is different here. The brothers now in this moment are not just bowing, they're laying prostrate on the ground. They're completely spread out before him. The scriptures capture it this way. They're abased because the word that's used here, nafal, it means to be right down on the very level of the ground, staring at the floor. All 11 of them are literally on the floor. On the first visit, these brothers had been awestruck by the severity of this Egyptian monarch. And they considered him a man to be totally feared, someone you do not mess with. And that's the way they relayed the information to their dad. Obviously, they don't know that it's Joseph, and they are completely petrified. And I'm sure in this moment, I know exactly what's going on in Judah's head. Because Judah is the one that promised his own life in exchange for Benjamin to his father. That's why Moses calls this out this way. Why Judah? Why is Judah being specialized in this way? When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he's the one who said, I'll put my life on the line. I will be the exchange. So what in the world can he say to his father if he returns to Canaan without Benjamin? Let's come back to the silver cup for a minute. Joseph has allowed them to perceive that he's got special powers, if you will. It appears that he's a true Egyptian monarch because he's got this silver cup. And he'd given very specific instructions as to how they were to refer to the cup when he's accusing his brothers of theft. Is not this the one from which my Lord drinks? Why say it that way? Because they had just seen him at the banquet the day before drinking out of that special silver cup. See, he's allowing their minds to wander and he's obviously playing into their mindset as his personal possession. Somebody has taken this item that's precious to him, verse 16. So Judah said, what can we say to my Lord? What can we speak and how can we justify ourselves? Remember, he's prone on the floor, staring at the floor, and he's saying, I got nothing. If, if it was 2023, he'd be saying it in that vernacular. I got nothing. There's nothing I can say to defend myself. I can't defend my brothers. What do we do in this situation? I want you to notice the structure of how this conversation is going to go forward because of this. The Bible says when the guilty know that they wear a heavy guilt, 
the mouths of the guilty are shut. In other words, there's nothing that you can say in your defense. The guilty stop defending themselves. And ideally in those moments, what they do is they begin seeking mercy, the mercy of God specifically. We find the 11 brothers prostrate on the ground because they're in this position where they recognize not only that they are in Joseph's position to have mercy from him, but there's something bigger going on here. Paul wrote about this. I want you to see this in the screen. Look with me at Romans 3.19, that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. We all have guilt. We know we have guilt. We carry sin with us, and we need the sin removed. Therefore, when the sin is removed, the guilt is taken away. Paul's argument is people who have heavy guilt on them, their mouths are silent and they're held accountable to God. I often laughed when someone says to me, when I get to heaven, I'm going to give God a piece of my mind. Let me know how that works out for you. That's not going to go well. You'll be lucky if you can pick yourself up off the floor to be in the presence of a holy God who knows exactly what your guilt is. Judah has arrived in this place where he won't even try and defend himself. And so he's saying, what can we possibly say? And it's because of the very next words that come out, which I want you to catch. It's so poignant that this is one of those places where if there was a soundtrack to play underneath, I'd put it right here, and it'd be the soundtrack of conviction. Conviction is coming over the top of them. Why is Judah answering this way? Because Judah is the one who initiated the sale of Joseph 22 years earlier. He's the one that offered the idea that got Joseph sold into the slave trade. So we look at the very next statement in verse 16, part B. God has found out the iniquity of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and the one in whose possession the cup has been found. Where's that coming from? It's coming from the realization of sin in their life. This deep, dark secret from 22 years earlier has caught up with them. The phrase that he just used, God has found out the iniquity, is not referring to the silver cup. They didn't take it. They know that they didn't take it. It refers to this deep, dark, hidden secret that's in their life. Now, Joseph has definitely set the stage for this. He has definitely set the stage for the brothers to be in his presence, but he could not manipulate this out of them. This comes from deep within. It is the profound conviction of guilt. And they're carrying a burden that is so heavy that the very first thought that comes spilling out of Judah's mind is, God's found us out. The iniquity of the life that we have lived, first and foremost by God, has been found out. Let me take you to Isaiah 59, 12. It says this, our transgressions are multiplied before you and our sins testify against us. For our transgressions are with us and we know our iniquities. 
If you picked up the notes this morning when you came in, and also you're going to see it on the screen in just a moment, there's a series of three Hebrew words that are used in that statement from Isaiah. So when the ancients, and especially in the Middle East, thought of sin or iniquity, they thought of it as a much more comprehensive scope than what we do. We're so black and white. We're so linear in the West. But for them, it encompasses all these words, avan, shata, pisha. It's got the concept behind it of rebellion, of treachery, not just sin, but the offender and what the offender did and the punishment involved in it. And so what's going through Judah's mind when he uses this word iniquity and saying, God has found out the iniquity of our hearts, Judah's saying all the above, all the realities of who we are, but even bigger than that, who new hope has found out. Look closely at the sentence, God has found out the iniquities of our heart. See, this confession is completely amazing because this is exactly, precisely what Joseph has been waiting for. They're not turning on Benjamin. They're not throwing him under the bus. They're not saying, he's a thief, let us go. Judah is owning it for all of them and he's saying, we're guilty. We've got a deep iniquity here. But he's not talking about the silver cup. He's talking about something bigger. Before God, we've all been found out. So mentally, what's going on here is he's going back in time, 20 years plus to those days when they were young men and they mercilessly sold Joseph into the slave trade. And bigger than that, they're acknowledging what we all know that we hope is not true. What they're acknowledging out loud that we all know but we hope is not true is that God does not overlook unrepented offenses. He doesn't. We don't have such a thing as white lies or little sins. Scripture says this, Proverbs 15:3, the eyes of the Lord are in every place watching the evil and the good. Sin has to be dealt with. There's guilt and there's sin and it has to be taken care of. Gratefully, and I hope you agree with this by saying amen, we have Jesus. Jesus takes away all your sin and takes away all your guilt. He does that for you when you have a relationship with him. But that's for another time. I need to stay on point with the story. The first test has just been given and it's a vertical test and the test is this, part of the two-part exam. Do these guys see the hand of God in these situations? Yes, exclamation point, they see the hand of God. Now comes part two of the final exam. Now, verse 17. But he said, far be it from me to do this. The man in whose possession the cup has been found, he shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. Far be it from me to do this. Do what? Make you guys all slaves. Only the guy who's guilty. What's Joseph doing? He's really pushing the boundaries here to see what they can take. Joseph needs to know if he announces that Benjamin is going to remain behind as a slave, how will they respond? What kind of action will they take? Now let's keep context. These guys are in front of Joseph, they're on the floor. And we see the future patriarchs of the tribes of Israel, 
They don't know that they're the future patriarchs. They don't know that they're progenitors of a great nation. As far as they know, their only destiny is the slave trade. But it's at this moment that one of them rises above the others, the very one from whose line Jesus will come. It's why Jesus has the title, the Lion of the tribe of Judah. Judah is the progenitor of the line from which Jesus will come. And Judah separates himself from the clan, and he comes in close proximity to Joseph, and he speaks directly to Joseph. Watch. This is long. Just let it be exactly what it is. It's beautiful. Verse 18. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears. And do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? We said to my Lord, We have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now his brother is dead. So he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Verse 21. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for he should, if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however, unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you will not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. Our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Your servant, my father, said to us, you know that my wife bore me two sons. And the one went out for me, and I said, surely he is torn into pieces, and I have not seen him since. Pause. That's the very first time Joseph has ever heard that information. Twenty-two years, he's wondered, what in the world does his dad think happened to him? The very first time he's ever heard that as far as his dad knows, he's not only dead, he was killed by an animal, and he was shredded into pieces. Verse 29, if you take this one also from me and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now, therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die. Thus your servants will bring the gray hair of your father, our, your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety, and that's the first time Joseph has also heard that Judah has traded his life for Benjamin. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please let your servant remain instead of the lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go to my father if the lad is not with me? for fear that I see the evil that would overtake my father. Earlier, you've seen that Judah could not have cared less for his dad's emotions. He's the one that orchestrated the sale of Joseph. He couldn't care less what his dad thought or felt. And here, it's Judah exhibiting the sacrificial attitude saying, take me, take me, let Benjamin leave. So Judah's willing to be a substitute for Benjamin. I'm asking the question, how much has this guy changed over the course of 22 years since selling Joseph? 
Now, it's because of this very genuine expression and the culmination of everything that you've been looking at that Joseph recognizes it's time for some family privacy. To this moment, it's been an Egyptian official meeting. The representatives of Pharaoh are present. The people who chase them down are present. The staff of Joseph's household are present. But Joseph wants his brothers for the first time to himself. A new hope, what comes next, is absolutely impossible to describe. This is why I say, you need somebody better than me. We grasp for descriptive language to paint the picture. Words cannot adequately define this scene as a sea of emotion washes over like the high tide coming across the beach. Verse 1 of chapter 45, Joseph loses it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by, and he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. Moses especially wanted us to know this detail. It's included here in verse 2. He wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. Uh, Apparently, Joseph's mansion is very nearby Pharaoh's mansion, close enough that they can hear things if it's loud enough. And what unfolds before your very eyes is one of the greatest moments in the entire Old Testament. Joseph is loud. He is so loud that the Hebrew language captures it this way, like a crackling, screaming thunder. To the degree, Moses writes, that even Pharaoh's household can hear what's happening. If you have ever wept so hard and so long and so loud that afterwards you can barely find the energy to speak, you know what's going on in this moment. The Hebrew language captures that there was a great amount of energy expended in this moment. So from our perspective as spectators, we're going to have to say these brothers are completely mystified, totally befuddled as they're watching a man equal to Pharaoh collapse in tears, and they're not silent tears. And once Joseph's energy is expended... And after what had to be an extraordinarily, excruciatingly long silence, as they listen only to the exhausted whimpers of a broken man while his voice echoes off the palace walls, they're left with nothing but mystery as he finally breaks the silence in both language and words. This is the very first time that Joseph has ever spoken in Hebrew to them. Ani Yosayef! Ani Yosayef! Ani Yosayef! Ani Yosayef! I am Joseph. With the tears streaming down his swollen cheeks and swollen eyes, they're hearing something that's so hard and so long and so loud. Verse 3 says, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. 
and it explodes in their ears like thunder. Because in the same moment, while it's joy for Joseph, it slices through their heart in excruciating pain where their hearts fill with terror and confused thoughts suddenly tumble through their minds and physically they begin to tremble while their hearts race uncontrollably. I know that because of what's said here, verse 3, part B. Is my father still alive? But his other brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. Dismayed is really weak in English. There's more going on there. One, one person came to me after the 9 o'clock service and said, I've got the NIV Bible, and the NIV Bible says they were terrified at his presence. That. Look, look at this word that comes up on the screen for dismayed. Baal, Baal. This, this particular word is capturing something that English completely misses. Inwardly, their heart is palpitating. Have you ever been so scared or so shocked by news that your heart begins racing? Then you can identify with this moment. These guys are utterly speechless. Every mouth has stopped and they're trembling and beginning to wonder, is this some kind of bizarre trap? How does this guy know the name of our dead brother? How is that possible? Here's the way that dismay does capture the thought when properly interpreted from the Hebrew language. If he's Joseph, what's next? Verse 4, then Joseph said to his brothers, please come closer to me. And they came closer, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Come closer is not just spatial in relationship. We would think of that when we say come closer. We're thinking somebody physically coming into our presence. There's that. But the way that it's used in their world when this word was used is talking about an intimacy, an intimate closeness, close enough to see the tears coming down the street, the, the cheeks. And there's two things that should encourage them in this moment. He's been weeping uncontrollably. And he's asking them to come close, and Egyptians didn't do that. Egyptians would never ask Hebrews to come close to them. He's not only identified himself, he's telling them what they've done to him, meaning no more dark family secrets. It's all exposed. Mind you, none of the brothers had ever told anyone what happened on that dark day out in the fields in Dothan 22 years earlier. And this is the first time Benjamin's ever heard this information. He had no idea. So they have to be thinking, how can this man know the truth? And they're staring at him, unable to blink. I've told you throughout the course of this story that grace is modeled in amazing ways in the story of Joseph. None more profound than here, especially here. What if Joseph had stopped right there? I'm Joseph, the one you sold into slavery, and ended it right there, even if just for dramatic pause. But because God is active in his life, 
because God affects the way that Joseph makes decisions, even though he's been subjected to astonishing mistreatment. We have verses five through seven. Look with me at verse five. Now do not be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. Now Joseph can obviously see the fear in his brother's eyes, so he goes even one step further, further to encourage them, and he expresses this incredible forgiving heart. Look at the way he finishes it in verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve you for a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. Now, therefore, it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his household and ruler over all the land of Egypt. You talk about someone who can see a sovereign God in action in their life, even though things have gone horribly wrong can still see the handprint of God, it's Joseph. This man knows that God is in control. This man knows that God causes all things to work together for good, even though Paul hasn't written Romans yet. He understands exactly this principle. And so you're finding in the Old Testament, with the Lord supporting him, he can look directly into his brother's nervous eyes and in all sincerity say four times in two verses, it was my sovereign God who saw far into the future. My sovereign God wanted to preserve life. My sovereign God chose to work through me. God is at work to preserve life through me. That's a perspective every Christian should have, that God is at work through your life to preserve life if we would tell people about Jesus. Now, he finishes it this way. Go with me to the last part, verse 9. Hurry up and go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me and do not delay. You shall live in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children, and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will also provide for you, for there are still five years of famine to come, and you and your household and all that you have would be impoverished. Behold, your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth which is speaking to you. Now you must tell my father of all my splendor in Egypt and all that you have seen, and you must hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell on his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept on his neck. He kissed all his brothers and wept on them, and afterward his brothers talked with him. Joseph could not ever, never speak this way if he has not fully forgiven his brothers. You cannot genuinely embrace someone to this degree if you have not fully forgiven them. It's why you can know this morning for sure that when you see Jesus face to face one day, Jesus is going to be able to say to you, welcome into the mansion that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. It's why you can expect that Jesus will embrace you because Jesus has fully 
forgiven you. Not partially, but completely. If you are a believer in Jesus, whatever sin you committed yesterday, a week ago, 10 years ago, whatever guilt you're carrying, as far as Jesus is concerned, it's released. Your sin is gone. He remembers it no more because of what he did on the cross. The Bible actually captures that when you get to heaven, God is going to be known as wiping away every tear. You have to get pretty close to someone to wipe the tears off their cheeks. I'd call that intimate relationship. So for Joseph, all the treachery, all the hatred, all the jealousy, it's all in the past. And here's the beautiful thing, church. The beautiful thing is this. He's forgiven them before they ever asked for it. Wow. Considering what they did to him, how is that possible? Because God has given him a proper perspective. God has shown him that he is the one who's in control. So let's end this by underscoring verse 9. And in verse 9 it says, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. God sent me here. God orchestrated all this. He planned it all. And it is a beautiful thing when God takes what was broken and what was evil and turns it for good. Only God can do that. Only God can take what was broken, you and I, can take what was evil, our sinful lives, and turn it for good. And he does that through Jesus Christ. Only God can do that. Now, just to be really clear, I would never suggest that extending forgiveness to someone who has severely harmed us is easy. We all know it's not. It is not easy. But it's exactly what Jesus modeled. Extending forgiveness for sins we haven't even committed yet. Past, present, future. He died for all your sin, and he extended forgiveness to you before you ever even sought it. He knew you by name. When we extend forgiveness in the way that you've seen Joseph do it today, we're at one level modeling exactly what Jesus did. Paul captures this to close it out. Verse 31 of Ephesians 4. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, Along with all malice, contrast it to this, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. So on one level, when we're forgiving other people who have wounded us severely, like you've seen Joseph do, we're modeling exactly what Jesus did. But on another level, we're also giving ourselves permission to move on but that's for next week. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the work of the Holy Spirit in this place, that you are drawing people into a deeper relationship with yourself and you're making your word become clear. I pray that what we've studied this morning will affect the decisions we make this afternoon and tomorrow and perhaps the rest of this year, perhaps the rest of our lives. Use what we have studied for the expansion of your kingdom, for the direction of our own life and how we will speak into the lives of other people. 
We give this time all over to you, and I ask for your blessing upon those who've been able to participate in this. Father, may your grace, your mercy, and your incredible blessing rest upon us. We ask for this in Jesus' matchless name, and all God's people said, amen. Have a great week, New Hope. I'll be down here in the front. If we haven't met yet, I'd be happy to meet you.